1: Thanks for tuning in to the 99th episode of our Civil War Podcast. I'm Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Welcome to the podcast. In the last show, as y'all will recall, we talked about the skirmish at Apache Canyon and set the stage for the Battle of Glorieta Pass. And so this week, we'll pick back up with a story and look at the decisive battle of Sibley's New Mexico Campaign.
1: The fighting in Glorieta Pass at Apache Canyon on March 26, 1862, was between about 400 Texans led by Major Charles Pyron and around 420 Federals commanded by Major John M. Chivington. Several days earlier, Pyron's detachment had advanced eastward from the territorial capital of Santa Fe on a collision course with a strong enemy force marching from Fort Union. That force, made up of Colorado volunteers, regular infantry and cavalry, and two batteries of artillery, about 1,300 men in all, was under the command of Colonel John P. Slow, a 33 year old Denver lawyer. Slow had halted his column east of Glorieta Pass, and on March 25th, he sent the detachment led by Chivington on ahead. Chivington had four companies of the 1st Colorado, a company of the 3rd U.S. Cavalry, and a detachment of the 1st U.S. Cavalry. It was this force that tangled with Pyron's Texans at Apache Canyon on the 26th.
0: The Texans came out the worst in the fighting at Apache Canyon. By the time darkness brought an end to the action, the Confederates had lost 4 killed and 20 wounded, as well as 71 captured. Five Federals were killed and 14 wounded. After the fighting was over, Pyron's men retreated through Apache Canyon to their camp at Johnson's Ranch at the western end of Glorietta Pass, where they awaited the arrival of reinforcements. Pyron had sent a messenger to Colonel William Dirty Shirt Scurry, who was about 15 miles away with the 4th Texas and part of the 7th Texas. After receiving Pyron's message, Scurry set out at once, setting out on a forced march through the night, and he reached Johnson's Ranch early on the morning of March 27th. Scurry assumed command and established a defensive position covering the narrow entrance to Apache Canyon, where the Confederates, numbering about a thousand men now, waited all through the day on the 27th in the belief that the Federals would renew their attack, but the enemy never appeared.
1: After withdrawing from Apache Canyon, Chivington's men had withdrawn to Pigeon's Ranch and there buried their few dead in a nearby field and set up a makeshift field hospital for the wounded. After 300 reinforcements from the main column showed up, Chivington realized the water supply at Pigeon's was inadequate for the number of men he now had on hand, so he pulled back to Kozlowski's Ranch near the eastern entrance to Glorieta Pass, where a spring ensured there was ample water. At Kozlowski's, at about 11 a.m. on the 27th, Slow and the rest of the Federals joined him. Receiving word from scouts that the Confederates at Johnson's Ranch had been reinforced and intended to move up Glorieta Pass, Slow devised a scheme to trap the Texans in the pass. He divided his force into two detachments, each of them smaller than the enemy's force. At dawn on Friday the 28th, Chivington left camp on a flank march that would allow him to get in the rear of the Confederate force as it moved up Glorieta Pass. Chivington had seven companies of Coloradans and regulars, about 490 men, or more than one third of the total federal force. Chivington's column would be guided across the high wilderness south of Glorieta Pass by Lieutenant Colonel Manuel Chavez and a group of New Mexico volunteers. Meanwhile, with the main body of troops, which was now reduced to 850 men, Slow started west along the Santa Fe Trail, planning to meet the advancing Confederate force head-on. He left a small guard with the supply train, which would remain behind at Kozlowski's ranch.
0: As for the Confederates, when the expected federal attack failed to materialize on the 27th, Scurry did indeed make plans to advance at Glorieta Pass the next morning. He planned to renew the fight with the enemy force that had so roughly handled Pyron, and then he would push on to fort union and take the place when he set out on friday morning scurry like the federals left the dozens of wagons of his supply train behind at johnson's ranch guarded by a small number of men
1: as slow's federals advanced westward they halted at pigeons ranch about mid-morning while the infantry rested or filled their canteens slow sent cavalry on ahead it wasn't long before the horsemen came galloping back reporting that the rebels were present in force only eight hundred yards away. One of the Coloradans, Private Ovando Hollister, wrote, quote, Suddenly the bugle sounded assembly, we seized our arms, fell in, and hastened forward perhaps five hundred yards, when their artillery commenced cutting the treetops over our heads. End quote. It was about eleven AM and the two forces collided about a half mile west of Pigeon's Ranch. On both sides of the road, the valley sloped up to higher elevations covered with timber and rugged masses of rock. Slow formed his main battle line right across the Santa Fe Trail, placing his two batteries of guns, each supported by an infantry company, across the road and partly up the northern face of a gently rising hill to the south. To the right and left of his main battle line, Slow copied Chivington's tactics of March 26th, by sending skirmishers up and along the wooded slopes to flank the Texans
0: scurry meanwhile deployed his dismounted cavalry in a line across the valley from a fence on his left up into the pine woods on his right with pyron commanding the companies on the right major henry ragouette the center and himself the left as the federals advanced up along the slopes above the road scurry saw a threat developing to his left There, Company I of the First Colorado attempted to move forward under cover of an old irrigation ditch so that they could flank the Texans, but Scurry responded to the threat with an attack across the field in front of the ditch. The charging Texans quickly closed with the Coloradans, and the fighting in the ditch degenerated into a fierce hand-to-hand struggle, where the rebels used their pistols, shotguns, and even knives to good effect, driving the Coloradans back with heavy losses to some rock ledges on the northern side of the valley above Pigeon's Ranch.
1: Elsewhere along the line, the Confederates were also successful. To the south of the road, Pyron's men, advancing slowly, fought their way around the Federal left. Slow, with his artillery threatened by Pyron's flanking maneuver, and with Raguit's men applying increasing pressure in the center, Slow ordered his force to withdraw about 800 yards, where they would establish a new line just west of Pigeon's Ranch, where the valley narrowed to a canyon. While Pyron's men continued to push forward on the Confederate right, the Texans' guns moved up to new positions, and the artillery of both sides hammered away at each other. The Federal guns, especially the ones on a hill bordering the south side of the road, now known as Artillery Hill, the Federal guns on Artillery Hill got the better of the duel. Direct hits put two of the Rebel guns out of action, and Federal sharpshooters picked off most of the Confederates working the remaining piece. The fire from the beleaguered Texan battery slackened and then almost ceased entirely.
0: Even with his artillery almost out of action, Scurry was still confident that his superior numbers could overwhelm the enemy, so he called for a general attack all along the line. On the Confederate right, Major John Shropshire was ordered to charge up the southern side of Artillery Hill and flank Lieutenant Ira Claflin's battery of Federal guns. On the left, Majors Pyron and Ragouette were directed to drive the Federals back along the rocky ledges north of the road— flanking Captain John Ritter's Federal guns positioned at the mouth of the canyon. In the center, Scurry would lead his men in a frontal attack against Ritter's battery and its supporting infantry, who were hidden behind an adobe wall and among some corral fences just 50 yards west of Pigeon's Ranch.
1: Although Lieutenant Claflin was forced to abandon his position atop Artillery Hill and move his howitzers down to the road near Ritter's guns, The Confederate assault on the right failed when Shropshire was killed and his men were beaten back. The attack in the center, although pressed forward gallantly, fared no better. Scurry led a series of desperate charges against the Federal guns, but each time they were hurled back by the enemy cannon and their supporting infantry. On Scurry's final try, the Federals delivered a withering blast of canister into the ranks of the Texans, and then the infantry counterattacked with bayonets. There was a wild struggle before Scurry gave the order to withdraw.
0: But on the rocky slopes on the Confederate left, the Texans had better luck. There, the Southerners pushed steadily forward, finally flanking the Federal line down on the road. In the fierce combat, Raguet was mortally wounded, and Pyron had his horse shot from under him but the Confederates' inflating fire forced the Federal guns and their supporting infantry to hurriedly withdraw to a new position east of Pigeon's Ranch.
1: As the Federals retreated, the Confederates followed, but the firing all but died out since both sides, after fighting non-stop for six hours, both sides were exhausted. Shortly after five o'clock, Slow ordered his men to fall back once more and return to their camp back at Kozlowski's Ranch, and so the Federals withdrew from Glorieta Pass, leaving the Confederates in possession of the battlefield. As Slow's force marched off, with the Coloradans grumbling and angry that they couldn't continue the fight, a Confederate ambulance flying a white flag caught up with them. Riding in the ambulance was Major Alexander M. Jackson, Sibley's assistant adjutant general, and he asked Slow for a truce until the following noon. The Federal commander agreed.
0: At 10 o'clock that night, the reason for the Confederates' request for a truce became clear when Majors Chippington and his weary men trudged into Kozlowski's ranch with the startling report. Guided by Chavez, they had crossed 16 miles through the mountain wilderness south of Glorieta Pass to a 200-foot-high bluff directly above Johnson's ranch, where Scurry and Pyron had left their supply trains. Moving down the steep bluff, Chivington's men had surprised and driven away the small guard, released some federal prisoners, and destroyed all 80 of the Confederates' wagons, burning them and all the Texans' provisions, forage, tents, personal baggage, and medical supplies.
1: When the destruction was completed, Chivington and his men climbed the bluff and returned over the mountains to Kozlowski's ranch. In the federal camp, Slow, though, had already decided to return to Fort Union and await further orders from Canby. He was aware that by leaving the fort virtually unguarded and advancing toward Santa Fe, he had likely incurred Canby's wrath, and so, without a clear-cut battlefield victory at Glorietta Pass to show for his independent action, Slow decided the safest course was to retire back to Fort Union. At Glorieta Pass, the Federals had suffered losses of 47 killed and 78 wounded. The Confederate losses at the battle were 42 killed and about 60 wounded. Scurry remained at Pigeon's Ranch for another day, tending his wounded in the makeshift field hospital and burying his dead. Since their tools had been destroyed along with their supply train, the Texans were forced to borrow picks and shovels from Federals who were using the truce to bury their own dead. Late on the twenty ninth, Scurry began his withdrawal to Santa Fe. In a message to Sibley explaining his retreat back to the territorial capital, Scurry indicated just how bad the condition of his command was by writing quote, My men for two days went unfed and blanketless uncomplainingly. I was compelled to come here for something to eat. End quote.
0: Chivington's destruction of the Texan supply train at Johnson's Ranch made it clear that the battle at Glorieta Pass, far from being a federal defeat, had in fact been an absolute disaster for the rebels. The cold and hungry Texans left their wounded at Pigeon's Ranch and retreated the 22 miles back to Santa Fe. There they were joined by Sibley, Colonel Tom Green, and the half-dozen companies of the 5th Texas that had been at Albuquerque while the actions at Glorieta Pass were taking place. The Confederates ransacked Santa Fe, scrounging and confiscating everything they could find in the way of provisions and supplies, including a stock of government blankets intended for distribution to Navajo Indians.
1: But the Texans had already been in Santa Fe for nearly a month, and so there wasn't much left in the territorial capital to confiscate, and the nearby villages and farms had also already been picked clean of foodstuff and forage. And so even after plundering Santa Fe and the surrounding countryside, Sibley's force still only had about 20 days' rations. But even potentially worse than that, one of the most serious consequences of the defeat at Glorieta Pass now came to light because destroyed with the wagon train at Johnson's Ranch had been the Confederates' entire ammunition reserve. And after taking stock at Santa Fe, it was found that Sibley's army was left with only 35 to 40 cartridges per man. Enough, perhaps, maybe, for one more battle with the Federals, but after that the Texans would be reduced to throwing rocks at the enemy.
0: Canby, still down at Fort Craig, was unaware of what had happened at Glorieta Pass. Running low on supplies himself and worried that the amateurish and reckless slow had left Fort Union vulnerable, Canby sent a messenger to the Coloradoan, ordering him to return to Fort Union at once and protect that critically important post. Then on April 1st, Canby set out from Fort Craig with 1,200 men, intending to march north and effect a juncture with the garrison at Fort Union.
1: But when Canby reached Socorro, 30 miles north of Fort Craig, He learned that the action at Glorieta Pass had been a disaster for the Texans, and that they had withdrawn to Santa Fe. After he received that information, Canby decided to alter his plans. He ordered Slow's force, which by then was back at Fort Union, to advance once again toward Santa Fe. Canby started his own force toward Albuquerque, hoping that the threat to that place would force the Confederates to evacuate Santa Fe. Then, after Slope's force occupied Santa Fe, the Coloradan could bring his men south and join Canby, and the United Federal Army would attack the enemy in Albuquerque, forcing them to abandon the town and continue their retreat southward. If Canby's plan worked, it would force the Confederates out of Santa Fe, then from Albuquerque, and finally from New Mexico.
0: Canby's plan worked perfectly. The northern Federal Force marched from Fort Union and advanced swiftly toward Santa Fe. Slow, however, was not leading the column, since by that time he had resigned.
1: Apparently, when Slow received Canby's message to return to Fort Union, he thought the dispatch also indicated he had disobeyed previous orders not to leave the fort. So, fearing that he would be brought up on charges despite his victory at Glorieta Pass, Slow resigned his commission and stepped down as commander of the first Colorado.
0: Right. So Slow wasn't leading the Coloradans when they reoccupied Santa Fe on April 11th.
1: And just as he'd planned, Canby's feint toward Albuquerque had drawn the Texans southward, and so the Coloradans entered the territorial capital unopposed, and then continued on to join up with Canby's main force as planned.
0: With the Federals united outside Albuquerque and with the Texans inside the town, the climactic battle of the campaign seemed about to occur, but it never took place. That's because Sibley, outnumbered and hobbled by a lack of supplies, was left with no choice but to withdraw from Albuquerque and retreat from New Mexico. And so on April 12th, the Texans evacuated the town and started south down the Rio Grande.
2: So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The Confederates' evacuation of Albuquerque was just the beginning of a long, agonizing retreat all the way back to South Central Texas. On April 15th, near the village of Peralta, about 15 miles south of Albuquerque, Canby found Colonel Tom Green's 5th Texas separated from the rest of the Confederate force by the Rio Grande. Not wanting to have to feed prisoners from his own meager supplies, Canby at first declined to attack the heavily outnumbered rebels, but when Green's artillery opened fire, the Coloradans, eager to have another go at the Texans, pitched into the enemy. Green's force was pushed back into Peralta, whose thick-walled adobe buildings ran for two miles along the river. Seeing no reason to risk heavy casualties in house-to-house fighting, Canby again ordered his men to halt and hold in position. After that, the fighting consisted of little more than random skirmishing and sporadic artillery fire, all brought to a close by a blinding dust storm late in the afternoon that covered Green's withdrawal across the river. The battle at Peralta was the main flare-up of combat that occurred during the Texans' retreat from New Mexico. That's because, since the pressure from the pursuing Federals was enough to hurry the Texans southward, Canby realized he didn't actually need to fight the Confederates to get them out of New Mexico.
0: During the retreat, Sibley was afraid to pass too closely to Fort Craig, so his plan was to circle around the place and then return to the frontier road south of the fort. And so, abandoning their sick and wounded, as well as all wagons, baggage, and supplies not deemed absolutely essential, the Confederate column left the road and struck off into the wilderness west of the Rio Grande on a hazardous detour. The 100-mile-long detour took the Texans eight days to complete, and during the difficult march, the men's morale cracked and Sibley's army virtually disintegrated. As the column struggled through the waterless wasteland of narrow sandy canyons, dense thickets of chaparral, and up and down steep, thickly timbered mountainsides, discipline dissolved. And according to one survivor, it was every man for himself as the Texans found themselves engaged in a desperate daily battle for survival. Quote, no order was observed. No company stayed together. The wearied sank down upon the grass, regardless of the cold, to rest and sleep. The strong, with words of execration upon their lips, pressed feverishly and frantically on for water. End quote.
1: Throughout the ordeal, Sibley failed to exercise leadership or provide inspiration to the men. He rode in an ambulance, ignoring the desperate plight of his troops. The head of the bedraggled column finally reached the Rio Grande again on April 25th. Sibley then paused at Mesilla but was back at Fort Bliss near present day El Paso by the first week in May. Behind him his tattered, half starved troops were strung out for fifty miles. They cursed him for his quote want of feeling, poor generalship, and cowardice. End quote. But the Texans' nightmare wasn't over once they reached Fort Bliss, because there Sibley learned that a column of Federal troops from Southern California was nearing the Rio Grande to reinforce Canby's force in New Mexico. The oncoming Federals were a force of 2,350 men, composed of various California volunteers and a company of regulars from the 3rd U.S. Artillery. The force had been assembled at Fort Yuma on the California-New Mexico border. In command was James H. Carleton, a veteran army officer. Moving eastward, elements of Carleton's so-called California Column had reached the neighborhood of Tucson by mid-March. Despite skirmishing with Texans at Picacho Pass and engaging in some sharp fighting with Apaches along the way, the first elements of the California Column arrived at the Rio Grande above Mesilla on July 4th.
0: By that time, Sibley and many of his remaining men were in flight back to San Antonio, A rear guard of about 600 Texans had been left up at Fort Fillmore under the command of Colonel William Steele, but on July 8th, they too withdrew before the approaching Californians. With their departure, the last semblance of a Confederate presence in New Mexico vanished.
1: The journey back to San Antonio, across hundreds of miles of West Texas desert, moving from waterhole to waterhole in the scorching heat of midsummer, was the ultimate ordeal for the remnants of Sibley's army. A stagecoach from El Paso passed some of the troops, and a female passenger wrote that the wretched men, quote, were suffering terribly from the effects of the heat, very many of them were afoot, and scarcely able to travel from blistered feet. They were subsisting on bread and water, both officers and men. Many of them were sick, many ragged, and all hungry."
0: Word of the soldiers' plight traveled ahead of them, and as they neared San Antonio, concerned relatives and friends went out to meet them with provisions. As it was, men straggled into San Antonio all summer, but sadly, of the approximately 3,500 Texans who had ridden west with Sibley the year before, 1,500 never returned.
1: After his return to San Antonio, Henry Hopkins Sibley offered no excuses and accepted no blame. In his report to Richmond, he wrote, quote, As for the results of the campaign, I have only to say that we have beaten the enemy at every encounter, end quote. The claim to have beaten the Federals at every encounter may seem absurd since the campaign ended so disastrously, but it actually comes close to the truth. At the two major battles of the campaign, Valverde and Glorieta Pass, the Texans had driven the enemy from the field, and yet the tactical victory at Valverde was negated by Sibley's failure to actually capture Fort Craig, and the tactical victory at Glorieta Pass was canceled out by Chivington's flanking march and the destruction of the Texans' all-important supply train. So, at the conclusion of an expedition that turned into such a disaster, for Sibley to write, As for the results of the campaign, I have only to say that we have beaten the enemy at every encounter. Well, that's just trying to put lipstick on a pig.
0: The collapse of Sibley's campaign ended the Confederacy's grand dream of expansion westward to the Pacific. In retrospect, it's easy to argue that Sibley's New Mexico campaign was doomed to failure long before the battle at Glorieta Pass. Sibley's blunders in underestimating the hostility of the local Hispanic populace and in failing to take into account the effect of the previous two years' drought on his plan to live off the land were inexcusable considering his service in New Mexico before the war. And then his decision to advance northward after Valverde, leaving Fort Craig in his rear, astride his line of communications back to Mesilla and Texas, was another crucial mistake. In the final analysis, all of that points to the fact that the entire Confederate venture into New Mexico from conception to implementation, was undermined by Sibley's poor leadership, and into that assessment must also be factored his recurring illness and his debilitating drinking problem.
1: Realistically, while Sibley might have had a decent chance of conquering New Mexico for the Confederacy, all things considered, it's extremely unlikely that he could have held on to the territory for very long, let alone pushed on to seize Colorado or Southern California. That's because it wouldn't have been very long before strong federal forces advancing from California and Kansas would almost certainly have overwhelmed the small, overstretched rebel army in New Mexico. And so the Confederate effort to conquer the Southwest during the Civil War was an ambitious but essentially impractical effort to accomplish a far-reaching strategic goal with woefully inadequate resources.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And this time, we have not one, but two books for you. The first is The Battle of Glorietta Pass, A Gettysburg in the West, by Thomas S. Edrington and John Taylor. And the second is Sibley's New Mexico Campaign, by Martin Hardwick Hall.
1: Tracy and I spent four episodes on this story arc covering the Confederate attempt to conquer the American Southwest, but we really could have spent twice as long as that talking about this really fascinating chapter in the story of the Civil War. But we could only really hit the highlights on the podcast, so if you're interested in digging deeper into all of this on your own, we really do encourage you to pick up some of these books that we've recommended in these four episodes.
0: To find all of those book recommendations, just head to the podcast website at www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com.
1: As we wrap things up, we'll thank Spiritwood Music for their permission to use their song, Midnight on the Water, as the intro and outro music here on every episode of the podcast. And then thanks to all of you guys for listening to this episode of the Civil War, 1861-1865, to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next week for episode number 100, but until then, take care.
0: Thanks, everyone. Bye.